0: All right, everybody, time for us to begin. Welcome. Week number five of our Truth for Life series. Handouts each week. And I think uh, I saw guys handing them out, so hopefully everybody has one. If not, they're in the back. John has some here, actually. So thank you, John. Thank you, Larry. So this is lesson five, and if you missed any of the back uh, lessons, those are on the back table as well. For next week, I mentioned in first hour that I'm going to be out of town next week, so we will not be, you will not be in here next week, uh, but rather you'll be in the auditorium, and Dr. Snowberger will be teaching uh, in there. I have no idea what he's teaching, but whatever it is, it'll be great, and you guys will really enjoy it. But for that one week, and then two weeks from today, we'll come back. We'll come back in here, okay? Today, as you see at the uh, top of page number 21, we're going to be looking at God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And you see the title that I have there, Coming to a Situation Near You. And the reason that I did that is because sometimes when we think of God, when we think of God in general, in particular when we think of God with regard to His sovereignty, we think of Him as as far away. And the Bible does teach that God is, fancy term, transcendent. He is above His creation. He is not like His creation, as we saw last week when we looked at holiness. But the Bible also teaches, blessedly, that God is also, another fancy term, eminent. And so God is is with us and desires to be with his, His creatures. He made us For that purpose, and he still pursues that, and that is largely what the Great Commission and redemption is all about, seeing people come to Christ so that those who are separated from God are reconciled to him and brought into relationship with him. And you see throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and then at the very end of human history, you see this statement over and over again, they will be my people and I will be their God. And so at the end of history, God has accomplished what he made humanity for, for us to be his people, a people that reflect him back to him in his image. But because of sin, that restoration goes through a redemption process. So we should think of God as eminent and that God is is seeking nearness with his, his creation, relationship with his creation. So when you think of his sovereignty it is god in the midst of that sovereign in that situation god's sovereign and in control in the midst of what's going on not detached from it not far away from it in acts chapter 17 when paul goes to athens greece and he speaks to greek philosophers there He makes this very point about God being near us. He's not far from any one of us. And God does what he does in his sovereignty so that perhaps we may reach out and find him. That's though he's not far from any of us. That's what Paul said. So when we talk today about this lofty subject of God's sovereignty, still think about the fact that God uses that control, his sovereign control of his world uh, in order to accomplish his purpose of being near his, and in relationship with his creatures. So we talk about God being sovereign. This is now the fourth. This is our fifth week, but this is the fourth doctrine that we've looked at. We looked at creation. We looked at glory. Last week we looked at holiness. The first week was an introductory week, and so now this is the fourth doctrine, sovereignty. And when we think about sovereignty, uh, you sh- I would encourage you to think first, dictator. Okay, Now, I'm going to soften that in a a bit, but God is sovereign, and the Bible teaches very clearly that God does what he does in his universe without needing or seeking anyone's permission, so there is no legislature, there's no impeachment, there are no checks and balances within God's government of his universe. He rules his universe as the unquestioned king, and he does as he pleases, and if he is God, then there is, if you think about it, who is going to change that? And who's going to be able to challenge that? The answer is no one. Contrary to what the TV preachers lie to you and say, that Satan is, in effect, just as powerful as God, and we hope God wins. (laughs) Satan's a creature. All but God is created. Everything outside of God, everything in the universe is created. My theology professor used to say that you can define the universe as everything that's not God. There's God and everything else. In the beginning, God created. And in the beginning, there was just God. And he created the heavens and the earth and everything that's, that's in them. And so there is no rival. There is no one that God's going to consult with to decide what it is he's going going to do. And so he is, when I say dictator, I say it for that reason. God's in control of his world, and he does with his world as he pleases. You see that in stories like the story of Pharaoh. I mean, here's Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is, from a human standpoint, he is king of the world at the time. But there's a king above him. And you see how God plays Pharaoh like a fiddle, in effect, in that story. (laughs) He brings ten plagues upon Egypt. God brings ten plagues upon Egypt. Each one of those ten plagues. Those are not random. You know, the flies and the frogs and the locusts and all. Those are not random. God chose those particular plagues because every one of those challenged one of the gods of Egypt. There was a God for in Egypt for every one of those things. And God was in effect saying, so where are your gods? And who's really God? That. And so he hardens, remember that? He hardens Pharaoh. And yet the Bible will also say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened... So the way God does this is he is so in control of his world that he puts guys like Pharaoh in positions to do what their hearts had already set, set to do. God doesn't make them do evil. God puts them in positions where their evil takes place. And they do exactly what is going to Produce the end that God has designed. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did. So God's hardening hardening of Pharaoh's heart means God took the restraints off of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh could do what he wanted. And that led directly into where God had designed for his people. So you see him as a dictator in control with guys like Pharaoh. You know, you come to the New Testament, you've got Caesar Augustus. And Luke chapter 2 says that in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. And so there's a census now and everybody has to go back to the city of their ancestry in order to be accounted for. And in the case of, in the case of Joseph and Mary, that means going back to Bethlehem. And the reason it's Bethlehem I mean, you just can't. It's unbelievable. <laughs> You've got to go all the way back to the book of Ruth, the eighth book of your Old Testament, to see how Bethlehem becomes a player. Becomes a player because there's a guy named Boaz who lives in Bethlehem. And, and Ruth ends up marrying Boaz through a series of circumstances that a sovereign God controls. And they wind up in Bethlehem and their great-grandson ends up being King David. And God chooses this King David from Bethlehem then to, uh, to be his first king of the uh, monarchy. And uh, he, he says that there's going to be a son of David who's going to come through the line of David who's going to be the Messiah. And God keeps track of that. And then you come to your New Testament and that's why it starts with a genealogy to say we're keeping track, it's still on track. <laughs> The way God said. And here's Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus is the pharaoh of his day. He's the world emperor. And he issues this decree having no clue that what he's doing is getting the human parents of Jesus to the town that the Old Testament predicted he would be born in. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So hey, thanks for your work, Caesar. And so you guys have heard me say everybody works for God. Pharaoh works for God. Caesar works for God. Obama, by the way, worked for God. Trump worked for God. Doesn't mean that any of them are good people. They can all be clowns, but God uses the clowns to get His stuff done too. Okay, he uses everything and every one. What about Judas? The drama around Judas, you know, Judas is chosen by Jesus to be one of his first 12 followers, but Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Contrary to what I was taught in my Pentecostal upbringing, Judas was not saved and lost his salvation, okay? Mm -hmm. Judas was never a Christian. Mm -hmm. And, And yet, just like with Pharaoh, in this drama, Judas, a guy who loves money, and position is put in position by God to do exactly what his heart wants to do. Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the list goes on, and it goes, it's not just in biblical times, friends, it's today. The reason that God can write a book with a last book, the book of Revelation, and tell you precisely how it turns out (laughs) is because He's in charge of everything to get us there. And it's going to turn out exactly as he said. So he, when I say he's a dictator, I mean, he is. He's in control of his world. You should take comfort in that. You shouldn't chafe at that. You know, you take comfort in the fact that God's got this and everything else. And take further comfort in the fact, I said I'd soften it a little bit. Actually, a lot. God is a dictator, but God is a benevolent dictator. That the things that God has sovereignly chosen to do in his world and decreed to do in his world without consultation, those things are done ultimately for good. That's what I mean by benevolent. Benevolent means good. And so God has good purposes in what he does. Always. It's good that, that evil exists. That seems weird. But see, a good God is the one who's allowed it to exist. And if it wasn't good, it wouldn't. This universe that we are in right now is the, is the perfect universe for now. For God's good purpose. Everything that's happening in God's world, the good, the bad, and the ugly is being used by God for his good, benevolent purposes. And so I say it's good that evil, what what does evil accomplish? One of the things it accomplishes is that it shows us more of who God is. You would never know the holiness of God. You would never know the justice of God unless it were against the backdrop of evil. And so God does this to show aspects of his character that you never would have known. He's a benevolent dictator. God sees the good in how he uses the bad. You can quote me on that. God sees the good in the way he uses the bad. He uses all of it ultimately for good. But it's still, he calls it bad. He calls the thing bad, the thing evil. But his outcome and his purpose in it is always ultimately good, always. So how can God do that? How can he on the one hand look in an event and call it evil, bad, sin, not good, And then yet, all of this is being used by God for ultimate good. And here's here's how. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Brother John, when he was uh, leading our music today, he quoted uh, some Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards is widely considered the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. (laughs) And he said, and he wrestled with these questions as few have, And Edwards said that God has the ability to look at every event through two lenses. The problem with us, the problem with creatures, is we've only got one lens. We can only see through a narrow lens. We can only see a portion of what's happening. And so we can look at the thing, and the thing in our narrow lens, just focused on that, is bad. And you can label it accurately, bad, sin, evil. So if one of us, heaven forbid, this afternoon were to have a heart attack and we're in the, in the hospital, uh, I, that's going to be bad. We can label it that way. Right away, it's bad. Especially if I'm the one who had the heart attack. So. <laughs> which is probably more likely than the rest of you, given my history. But something like that happens. Heart attacks are bad. The Bible labels them as such. Sickness is not part of God's original creation. Sickness comes because of sin, right? So you can label it bad, and God sees it, and he labels it as bad. So we see this now, but God sees through this other lens as well. He sees every event Even the bad, the evil, the sin, the ugly, through the widest possible lens. He sees how that thing is connected to every other thing and what it's going to produce. And so God is benevolently controlling his world, using all of these things that are in themselves, just by themselves, they're bad, they're evil. But that's why God can say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 that God works all things together for good. Now, the King James says of that, all things work together for good. But it's supposed to be God works all things together for good. Because you see, all things don't work by themselves. All things don't work together for good without the active involvement of a good God orchestrating. God works all things together for good. Now what are the all things that God works together for good? Sometimes we don't read past. Verse 28, which is a real shame because you've got this majestic portion from verses 29 to 39 at the end of the chapter. And Paul goes on later in the chapter to say, what shall separate us from the love of God? And then he gives all of these things. Do you guys remember what's there? Famine, hardship, sword, that would mean death. (laughs) All kinds of bad things. So the all things that God is working together for good includes that stuff. But a sovereign God, a benevolent dictator, brings it all together for his good purpose. And he can see it and call it evil, call it sin, call it ugly, call it bad, call it what it is. He sees it the way we do through the narrow lens. He also sees it through the widest possible lens. And he sees the good that he is working. So just stop for a minute. Think about what you got going on in your life. And think about the bad thing. And I don't know how many people we have in here, 60 or so. There are at least 60 bad things going on. <laughs> right? And I don't mean 60 bad people. <laughs> I just mean people have bad stuff going on. We all got stuff, Right? I mean, I, you know, this afternoon at the meeting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to told you guys that, you know, we got a 10-year plan, and 10-year plan is going according to plan until it's not. Like, you know, 10 days ago. And so I'm going to keep you in suspense until this afternoon. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I look at that. I, I believe every syllable of what I'm saying here. To the bottom of my heart. But when I get a curveball, I have to remind myself all right, wait a minute, where does this fit in? Say, what? I got this good plan. Lord, you knew that, didn't you? (laughs) And, you know, I've told everybody about the plan and where we are in the plan, and the plan's moving forward, and now it's not moving forward the way that we intended. So you quickly have to come back to God's got his good purpose in this, right? So every one of us, myself included, we all have then, Things that happen, things that are happening in your life right now. Christians should never be people who wig out. You don't need to wig out. Why, why would I need to wig out? I mean, I get traumatized when the news comes about whatever it is. And then I go, wait, what is that? And then I have to regroup But I don't have to wig out. You don't have to wig out about whatever it is that's happening if you believe that God is sovereign and that God is good, both. All right, with that, page 21. The Bible is clear in teaching that God sits on the throne of the universe in unstoppable, unalterable power. If you want to understand the sovereignty of God, a great place to go is Jonah because first Jonah tells me, the book of Jonah tells me that God commands this fish to do something. So, you know, the the four-chapter drama of Jonah and and it says um, in the NIV, it says four times in those four chapters, God provided something. The idea is God ordained something, God brought something, and one of them was a fish. So I'm going to have this great fish show up exactly where he needs to be in order to teach this rebellious prophet a lesson. So Paul Tripp here, second paragraph, says, think about it. Think how specific that is. That an individual creature is under his command. Later in Jonah, we're told that God appoints a worm. First God appointed the vine, and then he appoints the worm to chew the the root of the vine. God appoints both of those. Now my mind's totally blown. How many billion worms are there? And God says, you're my chosen worm. Now, in our age of scientific explanations, it's very important that we realize that our world is under rule, that I'm under rule, but there are, but there's two things that need to be said about that. The first is God's sovereignty doesn't violate my volition as His creature. I don't wake up in the morning and my arm starts going to a shirt that I don't want to wear. And I think, no, I don't want to wear that shirt because God's in control. That's not how it works. The <laughs> theological way of saying this is God accomplishes His sovereign plan through the true volitional volition of the secondary agent. That would be us making our choices. In other words, the way God works out His plan is through my choices. So it's never is God sovereign or am I responsible. The answer to that is yes, both, because it's my responsible choices that are the means by which He accomplishes His sovereign plan. It's mind-blowing and it's a beautiful thing. The second thing is when you think of the sovereignty of God. You would often think that this is one of his transcendent qualities, that he's off out there, like I said, but Paul spoke to the Athenians, and he said that last sentence, he's actually knowable, and I can tell you who he is. And so Paul talks about, second to the last paragraph, God as creator, but he talks about God as sovereign, and he says he determines the exact places where we will live, the exact length of our life. He does all of this so that he's not far from each one of us, so at any moment, We can reach out and touch him as it were. So it's not transcendent theology, or excuse me, sovereignty, but eminent sovereignty. Top of page 22. If the sovereignty of God doesn't depict to you that God is near to you and active, then you've misunderstood the sovereignty of God certainly for a Christian and that way the sovereignty of God should not discourage me and make me feel small it should encourage me make me feel cared for because what's out of my control is under his It means when I need help he's near because he's right here in control of every situation every location it's impossible for Paul Tripp to ever be in a situation or location or relationship that isn't ruled by my Lord things are out of my control I have such little sovereignty I can't keep hold on my keys. (laughs) But God is sovereign and I rest in his care. So, you see that next paragraph. In working out his own plans, God uses everybody, even the devil. You know, and I've said this a number of times, said it even recently, but... Anytime you come across Satan, you come across the devil, the adversary in scripture, you need to remind yourself who he is, that he's created. He's not the creator. He's made by God and he is under God's control. He can only do what God allows, only. He is on a leash. He has to present himself before God to get permission to do anything. So he is not out there on the loose, out of control. Nobody's out of God's control, including Satan. And in the end, the book of Revelation says that he will be bound. You all remember? He will be bound. And then God will loose him for a short season. And because sin is insanity, and Satan is the main mental patient, He's going to try again. Right now, Satan knows that he's under the control of God. Do you remember the demons speaking to Jesus and they said, have you come to torment us before the time? They know their days are numbered. But they do do what they do by nature. And so they keep doing it. And then here's Satan. He's gone through millennia. Of God controlling him and yet he's still gonna try one last time until he's finally consigned to the lake of fire God uses everybody even the devil now at first that shocks some what God uses the devil it's exactly right everybody even the devil serves God's purposes a servant may serve through gritted teeth he may hate his servitude but he is a servant. So it is with the devil. The devil has never done one thing out of love or obedience to God. He's never done one thing in order to knowingly bring glory to God. Everything the devil does, he does because he hates God and because he's trying to frustrate the purposes of God. But in the end, everything the devil does will surely further the purposes of God. If ever there was a born loser, it's the devil himself. In the final day, it will be shown that the devil never won a single time, and that includes the Garden of Eden. And you see this truth in Isaiah 10. But this is not what the Assyrian intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled, those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? This is very clear. The Assyrian does not have the same thing in mind that God has. It's perfectly obvious the Assyrian's not thinking about God at all. All the arrogant Assyrian's thinking about is destroying another nation, robbing of of its riches. But totally unbeknown to the Assyrian, God is the one directing. God is moving his mind and emotions. The sovereign Lord is directing the Assyrians every action in order to accomplish his own purposes of judgment, their idolatry in Israel. And further, man's wrath, man's anger, God uses to bring glory to himself. Verse 10 of Psalm 76 says, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. And then goes on to say, and thou restraineth the residue thereof. Can you guys tell that's the King James? And thou restraineth the residue thereof. In other words, man is filled with wrath against God and his authority. God did not put the wrath in man, nor is God responsible for either the wrath or the actions of the man that expresses that wrath. Man's, quote, free will is 100% responsible for both every ounce of wrath and sin in his heart for every act produced by that wrath and sin. Nevertheless, God totally controls and directs man's way. All of man's wrath will further God's purpose. And so is allowed to surface and is used and controlled by God for his own ends. However, there's a lot of wrath in man that does not fit into God's purpose. And so he puts a cork on the residue (laughs) thereof. And he does not allow that to express itself. God controls man's wrath both ways, decides when and how much will be expressed, and uses each expression to accomplish some specific part of his ordained plan. The devil is the hardest-working servant God has. I remember how astonished I was when I first heard that. However, the moment God showed me the truth of his absolute sovereignty, I immediately saw how true that was. Granted, the devil does every single thing that he does out of pure hatred. Nonetheless, God controls and uses it all to accomplish his foreordained plan, perhaps an illustration. So here's this illustration in the middle of page 23, a wealthy man. Mr. Rich had a beautiful estate covered with every kind of tree. He didn't like women, so he was a bachelor. He couldn't stand animals, so he had no pets. Doesn't sound like a bad guy to me, uh, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he treated his trees the same way people treat their pets. Some people treat their pets. He even gave each tree a name. Mr. Rich had one particular tree that was his favorite. Unfortunately, he also had an enemy. We'll call him Mr. Evil that hated him and desired to hurt him, However, the enemy could not find a way to carry out his evil desires. One night Mr. Evil thought up a way to deeply hurt and wound Mr. Rich. Mr. Evil climbed over the fence into the orchard, proceeded to chop down Mr. Rich's favorite tree. The very thought of how hurt he's going to be made him work all the harder. Finally the tree began to fall. Mr. Evil was so excited he ran the wrong way. The tree fell on him and pinned him to the ground. <laughs> Shortly after daybreak, Mr. Evil saw two men walking toward him and the fallen tree. I know I'm caught, I know I'll be punished, but I don't care. I ruined your favorite tree. The poor man was so filled with pathological hatred he kept saying, I ruined your tree, I ruined your tree. Mr. Rich looked at him and said, this man with me is a building contractor. I must cut down one of my trees to build a summer house for my parents. And I had chosen this spot right here. (laughs) And I brought this gentleman Out to show which tree we would have to cut down, but I see that you have saved me the trouble. (laughs) Thank you. So everything the devil does will always, in some way, further God's purposes. We need to remember that God must accomplish His purposes in a world of sin, and because of that, there's a lot of awfully dirty work that has to be done. God will never get His hands dirty, because the devil will unknowingly take care of all the dirty work. Joseph's brothers may do what they did out of hatred, but the Bible says God meant it for good to bring to pass what he had ordained. The Assyrian and the Chaldean may be motivated entirely by lust for power and booty, but God is in charge of their every expedition. So here's this term that perhaps you've never heard, but I think it's a helpful one, concurrence. Bottom of page 23 and it refers to the actions of two or more parties taking place at the same time. One string of actions occurs with another string and they happen to dovetail or converge at a particular point in time. So the Christian doctrine of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human volitional actions is called the doctrine of concurrence. An amazing illustration of that is that story of Joseph. You have that in Genesis chapters 37 through, through 50. So quickly, Joseph was, you remember, favored by his father Jacob, who gave Joseph a colorful coat. Joseph's brothers hated him because of that favored treatment. One day when Joseph fell into his brother's hands, far from his father's watching eyes, they went so far as to discuss killing him, but in the end, they simply sold him to some caravan traders going down to Egypt. In Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He served Potiphar well, became steward of his household. Potiphar's wife made illicit advances. He refused. Hell knows no fury like a woman scorned, and so she accused him of attempted rape. He's thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he met Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker who was, had displeased the king. During their time in prison, Joseph interpreted dreams for the cupbearer and the baker, and both dreams came true sometime later after they have been restored. He told Pharaoh about Joseph's ability. Pharaoh summoned Joseph to interpret his own dream. He was so grateful he appointed Joseph prime minister of Egypt, tasked with preparing for the famine Pharaoh had foreseen in his dream. When it came, it affected Joseph's homeland too. Jacob's family was starving, so Jacob sent some of his sons down to Egypt to buy some of the surplus food that the prime minister had been wise enough to store away for the Egyptian people. When the sons went to Egypt, they encountered Joseph. But while they didn't recognize him, he recognized them. He hid his identity for a while, finally revealed that he was their long-lost brother. At his invitation, Jacob moved his entire family to Egypt. Years later, after Jacob had died, the brothers became so afraid Joseph would take revenge for selling him into slavery. So they concocted a story saying that Jacob had told them that he wanted Joseph to forgive them. They didn't need to worry. Joseph had long since forgiven them. He said, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He didn't whitewash their sin. He said, you meant evil. He was saying that they acted with evil intent in selling him to the Midianites. Joseph's brothers were guilty of sin, sin they personally had wanted to do. But God stands above all human choices. He works through human freedom to bring about his own providential goals. That's what Joseph was saying. You chose to do something sinful, but all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's too bad they were using the King James there should say, but God works all things together for good. Did I tell you that earlier? All right. (laughs) I know I did. So what good? Well, first of all, God sent Joseph to Egypt to make preparations for the famine and thereby save many lives, including those of his own family. Second, God caused Jacob's entire family to move to Egypt, that they might prosper there and multiply, only to be enslaved and later delivered by the mighty hand of God in one of the key moments of redemptive history. And God brought all of this about through the concurrence of his own righteous will and the sinful will of Joseph's brothers. There's an old simple story that teaches a profound lesson. Now follow this. For one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the message was lost. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of the the battle, the kingdom was lost. So what would have happened in the history of the world if Jacob had not given Joseph a colorful coat? No coat, no jealousy. No jealousy, no treacherous sale of Joseph to Midianite traders. No sale of Joseph to Midianite traders, no descent into Egypt. No descent into Egypt, no meeting with Potiphar. No meeting with Potiphar, no trouble with his wife. No trouble with his wife, no imprisonment. No imprisonment, no interpretation of the dreams. No interpretation of the dreams, no elevation to the role of prime minister, no elevation to the role of prime minister, no reconciliation with his brothers, no reconciliation with his brothers, no migration of the Jewish people into Egypt. No migration into Egypt, no exodus. No exodus, no Moses. No law. No prophets. And no Christ. Do you think it was an accident in the plan of God that that code happened? God meant it for good and used every piece of it. So, what's going on in, I ask you to think about what's going on in your life. If God is working all things together for good, and he is, And if you see that over and over in history, you see that over over and over in redemptive history, then do you ever need to short-circuit God's moral will in your life? Do you ever need to take matters into your own hands? If God's told you this is what you're supposed to do, then what would cause you or me not, to not do it? Well, if we're in a bad situation, a difficult situation, some situation we don't like, we, might, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands. One of those that I've seen over and over again in ministry is seeing people who are in marriages. And they're difficult. A difficult marriage, I've seen lots of difficult marriages, more than I care to remember, from professing Christian people, and Christian people don't live in a, we live in a fallen world so we don't have perfect relationships, I get that. My wife didn't marry a perfect husband. And I didn't marry a perfect wife, although pretty close. Right? <laughs> this is being recorded. I, had to... <laughs> and I And I actually mean that too. But, but you know, we're, we're all sinners, right? So there is no perfect marriage. There is no perfect relationship. There is no perfect anything in this world as it is now. And God does say that there are times where a divorce can happen because the covenant of marriage has been broken. Abandonment, adultery, and there are forms of abandonment where someone is abusing. That's abandoning the the covenant when someone does that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just because it's difficult, you don't get to take matters into your own hands. And yet, how many times have you seen people do that? I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to move out of my house. And you say, well, does God, what does God say about that? Well, you, and, and this is what I get. I've gotten this many times over the years. Oh, you don't understand. No, believe me, I understand. I, I talked to somebody like you, you know, two months ago. They said the same thing. Believe me, I understand. You don't like your marriage. But can God use that marriage for good? Yeah. See, here's what happens. The first couple pages of this thing, going through it, man, Caesar, Augustus, Pharaoh, Judas, Pilate, Herod, and you guys are all going, yeah, that's right. God's using all that for good. And then you get to the end of the lesson and you go, so can he use the stuff in your life for good that you don't like? And all of a sudden, I got a couple nods, but I don't get the vigorous nods that I was getting earlier. Right? Because now I've got to apply this to my situation, your situation. Mm -hmm. And this class is called Truth for Life. Applying God's word to our lives, these truths. So do we believe God is a benevolent dictator? Do we believe he's good? Do we believe he's working all things for good? if we really believe that, then we will say, yes, Lord, I know you've got this. All you're telling me to do is what you say. In whatever situation you have placed me, whether marriage, whatever it is, this is what you've told me to do. I'm going to obey you and I'm going to let you take care of it because I trust you because you're a good God because you're in control. My boss is not in control. My, My educational institution is not in control that professor that I hate is not in control so I'm going to obey you in all of my circumstances in all of my relationships and then I'm going to watch you work and in that moment where you or I say I'm going to circumvent that I'm going to take matters into my own hands that's the moment you're saying God doesn't have this So, I'm going to end the conviction part here in a moment. We'll end with with prayer. But I sometimes have people who are contemplating these kind of things. I say to them, I want you, if it's a Christian person, I say this. If I'm convinced they're a, a, a Christian person struggling to do the right thing, I say, I want you to tell God. I want you to look up and tell God you're not in control. Now, how many people do you think have ever taken me up on that? Zero. And I say, I'm glad you don't want to say that because I don't think in your heart of hearts you believe that. But you're tempted right now to go that way. And make no mistake, when you violate what God has said, you are saying, God doesn't have this. God's not in control. And it causes... Thankfully, many to say, all right, let me rethink this. How can I get through this then? What does God have for me in this? How can I grow in this? How can I help the person I'm in relationship with to grow in this? Whatever the issue is at work, at home, whatever it is, I'm going to follow what God says because I believe He's in control, He's a dictator, and He's a benevolent dictator. Let's bow. Father, thank you for this time to think about you and to think about you as king of your universe and on your throne. And Lord, this has, these are, these are not just neat stories, although they are marvelous, and you've given them to us so that they would cause us in our circumstances to apply the truth that's contained in them. So Lord, help me, help us not to place these stories millennia away from ourselves. This is something that happened to Joseph and Moses and Egypt and Pharaoh and all of that thousands of years ago. No Lord, help all of us to think about you as the God who orchestrated that as being involved in orchestrating what's happening in our lives today. May we think about that as we think about how to handle the situations that you have sovereignly placed us. May we seek to glorify you in those, obey you in those, get out of those the good that you always have in them by obeying you rather than sinning and taking matters into our own hands. All of us have such situations, so help us, Lord, to reverse course. Go with us, we ask you this week, into those circumstances, at work, at home, at school, in our neighborhoods, and help us to apply now the truth that you're in control of this relationship, this circumstance, and that you have us in it for good. May we act accordingly, grant us safety, bring us back together next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.